not all ideas are good ideas. But it is also true that if you don't fundamentally believe that you're doing something of, of value, whether financial value, value to the patient, whatever, um, you know, you're, you're going to lose faith. If you start to think that maybe this isn't a very good idea, you know, you're never going to get it done. And now from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. Getting startups off the ground is a challenging task. Founder of Companion Medical and CEO of Better Bionics, Sean Sin tells us how he became a successful health tech founder in the diabetes care industry. From graduating with mechanical engineering degree to founding companies with radical diabetes solutions, Sean made a lasting mark with the first insulin smart pen. Along the way, he's learned three crucial steps valuing user experience, understanding your metrics, and empathizing with the customer. In this episode, Sean will discuss his career path and lessons learned on getting from the project to the product stage. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Sean. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much, Christine. It's great to be here. It's been great to get to know you a little bit uh, through some of our program uh, with our RICE program where you mentor one of uh, our founders. And I thought it would be fun for everybody to hear a little bit about your background. It's almost sometimes when you're in medical devices, you come from the engineering. Seems very traditional route, but, you know, but uh, tell us about how you end up choosing to be in the healthcare space. Yeah, the healthcare space specifically, and I am an engineer by training, Christine, so I guess traditional traditional story there, uh, mechanical engineer originally. Um, ending up in healthcare was almost luck. I ended up doing internships in both the defense industry as well as healthcare, and um, my whole family is you know, doctors and nurses and PAs and you know, in the healthcare space, and I didn't even realize it was a thing until I, I did that. And I just loved it. You know, the idea that you can actually help people, even as an engineer, was oddly somewhat shocking to me. Um, so I got into that and I, I never turned back. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you mentioned that you started out in the defense industry, which is so the opposite. <laughs> Antithetical, <laughs> yeah. But I'm sure you learned something along that way. I mean, what did you learn that you think is applicable to your journey? And why not stay in the defense industry? <laughs> Well, I, I, I think it's somewhat, you know, as a mechanical engineer, you know, that's it's like, geez, what do you do? Well, it's like, well, we design tanks or weapons or something. You have to. It's just sort of a thing. Um, so I went down that road because it was expected of me. Uh, the biggest thing I learned was not so much from the defense industry. It was actually about larger companies. Um, you know, most of the defense industry is, is big companies, and certainly my experience was. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it just wasn't necessarily for me. Um as I moved on and did my next internship at a uh, healthcare company uh, with a much more entrepreneurial startup environment, I found myself just in love with that as much as I did healthcare. And the combination of the two had me hooked. Um, so I, I don't know if I could say anything I learned specifically about defense, except mm-hmm. it was fine. It was interesting work, but mm-hmm. you know, healthcare is better. It's so funny because I, I got asked sometimes uh, with a lot of uh, students who came, who I met through my work here. And one of the questions they often ask is like, do you think I should work for a larger company first or should I just go to a startup? 
what kind of things I have my, my, my answer. I'd like to hear what your answer if somebody asks you that question. Yeah, I think it depends on the person, oddly. Um, in, in my particular case, I only followed one path, so it's hard for me to know what what would have happened to me if I'd have gone straight into a startup a little earlier. And, and, and really, I did. When I graduated, I went to, all right, which was definitely a larger startup at the time. It was, I think, the company I went to had about 1,200 people at that point. But um, but we felt we still had that startup mentality more so than I've seen in any other 1,200-person company, um, and certainly more so than my defense experience. Um, there are things large companies teach you that are important to know. You can learn them in a small company as well. But, you know, they do do things, quote unquote, right. Um, you know, they have the world's expert in every single thing that they do. And if you want to learn statistics or if you want to learn verification and validation or if you want to learn whatever that particular skill set is, they have the world's expert at the large company. Um, but if you want to walk a new path, if you want to learn something new, what big companies do really badly is things that big companies do really badly. And that sounds stupid. But what I mean is, if you don't have that world's expert, then rather than develop that skill set in-house, they'll go try and find that person. And because there's a fear of failure um, within the large organization, where I think the small organization really respects, um, they respect effort and and failure to some extent, right? Um, you, you hear statements like, a broken clock is right twice a day and things like that. Um, you know, things that sort of imply better to just give it a shot, right? And, and and I think that it depends on the person. If you are the kind of person who is willing to go out and learn things on your own, then you're going to absolutely thrive at a small organization. If you need to be shown your job, which is a lot of people, um, then a, a big one is definitely for you. Um, but but either you can learn from both both environments as both sorts of people. There's no question about it. Yeah. I think in life, you always can learn something from anything, what you're mm-hmm. experiencing, rather than try to think about, like, I wish I've done it the other way. Um, right. But so I thought, it was, you know, you're starting your career as an engineer, and then you get gain more experience. You work in a larger and larger company and then founded a company. Tell us about that journey. Well, you know, founding the company, I, you know, this is something I've admitted a lot of times. I would love to tell you that. I'm like a born entrepreneur or something like that. And there's just nothing could be farther from the truth in my case. Uh, like anything else, it was a skill I had to learn. And in fact, in my case, had to be uh, sort of backed into a corner to do. Um, with Companion Medical, it was an idea that myself and my co-founders felt just had had to be done. The world had to have this product. But we additionally felt like somebody must be doing it. We obviously don't know what was happening in the labs of the larger organizations and they had to be working on it, right? How could they not be? And it turns out we were actually correct about that. But we were we were scared that, you know, they the big companies would beat us out. Um, but then eventually we realized, well, wait a minute. Um, you know, somebody's probably working on this. But what's going to happen is they're going to launch the product. And the whole world is going to realize how important it is because we realized that. And they're going to need one as well. And we'll be ready to go and sell them that project. So the original idea was actually a project more than it was a product. Um, it wasn't really, it was a company only in that it needed to be to raise money and, and, and get it going. It wasn't really intended to be commercialized originally. And, and what ended up happening, oh, and, and you know, I ended up running the company um, mostly because somebody's got to do it, um, not because I had 
you know, delusions of grandeur or anything about, you know, what that could turn into. Um, it's just, yeah, somebody's got to get the administrative work done. So I, I said I would do it. And over time, what ended up happening was, A, it turned out we were right. Other people were working on this. B, a startup company can be faster, and we were. And that meant we ended up being the first to launch this particular product, which was a smart insulin pen. And um, so instead of being ready to go with the fast follower, we we were the leader in the space, which was not what we originally intended. It also meant, though, that as we progressed along, we thought we, we would have a project we could sell, and, and that didn't turn out to be true. And then we would get 510K clearance with the FDA, and we would have a product we can sell, and, and that didn't really turn out to be true. And then we launched the product, and we turned it into an industry, and then we had a company we could sell. And that evolution from project to product to company was something that um, I don't think I could have, I didn't see coming, certainly. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting in a way that you find a path from the project product to a company. I think oftentimes thing does not work out that way, but what are the different way of for you to navigate like i'm sure when you're faced up in that juncture it's like oh dang this might not be going to the product stage and then end up staying in a project but you didn't so what are the things that you saw coming and then how you solve that particular challenges at that moment wow i mean that's a kind of an open-ended challenges question i mean there's so many um on the product itself project product you know indistinguishable at this point, there were certainly technical challenges. You know, we believed strongly that we had to focus on the user experience of the product. It wasn't enough to have kind of what it does on paper. The way you interact with it as a person with diabetes, which I am, by the way, um, so I felt truly passionate about it, it had to be right. And so example would be we have a one-year battery in our product, um, lasts the entire year, and then you throw the product out and you get another one. And there's no recharging, there's no, you know, none of that, which also means there's no port on it, you have to plug it in. So a lot of, you know, every month there was some reason it's like, well, that's not going to work. We're going to have to put a port on it or we have to plug it in every week or whatever. And it's just the whole thing fell apart. And every time we said, no. No, can't do it. Go back to the drawing board, figure it out, fix the problem, lower the power consumption, put a bigger battery, whatever it is, but it's not going to work if we do it that way. And there were definitely low points where we said, you know, we can't do it. And then somehow or another, we solved every one of those challenges. And um, yeah, we're pretty proud of that. So then that's the product itself. The company, I mean, gosh, you know, there was always financing challenges when we obviously saw a need, but I think it's natural that the world didn't see that need because if they did, everybody, everybody would have been doing it. And so that's then natural that you go out and try and convince the investors that you've seen something that you know everybody else in the industry hasn't seen, or in fact had seen in our case, they just hadn't been too public about it. And um you know, and it seems like you must be wrong. And in fact, I think there's a catch-22 there, right? Because if you saw it and nobody else did, well, then you're probably wrong. But if you saw it and they did too, well, now they're just going to beat you. So, you know, which one, you know, where, what, what is the story where, wow, this company really has something here. They've seen a need nobody else saw for good reason. And they're right about that. And nobody's going to beat them. 
I still don't know what that story is. I've never, I've never heard it. Um, so yeah, I think that that's a, probably one of the more difficult things in, um, it's more difficult things in, in developing the, the company is convincing the world that you've got a point and you're the ones to win. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping med tech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. Do you have like a framework? I mean, because what the challenges that you share on the company, like convincing the other, this is a problem that's really worth solving, that you see it so clearly in your brain. And like, do you have like a framework on how to tell that story? Is there like a secret that you kind of use? No. And I think the reason for that is, you know, I know one, one of the books that, you know, we all read all these, you know, innovation books and whatever, the innovators dilemma for me was a really good one. Um, And they talked about the shifting metrics, right? You know, as a, as an industry matures, everybody understands how to look at, how to compare products in that industry. And we develop the right metrics, right? And one in the, um, in my space, in the diabetes space with CGM, we developed MARD, meaning absolute relative difference. Everybody knew that was the right metric. To me, it's shifting. Um, in my space, automated insulin, automated glucose, um, automated insulin delivery, excuse me. Um, we look at time and range at your clinical trial. I think that may not be the right metric. It's evolving. Um, but that's the problem, right? You have to tell people that, you know what, the way you're looking at this is, it was right several years ago, but now it's flawed and you have to convince people that, that they're wrong. And I I just don't have a framework for how to do that, except that number one, that you have to understand that by their metrics, they're right, right? What you're doing is silly based on the metrics they're evaluating it on, right? So Rather than just keep pushing on your idea, explain why, like at an underlying level, the idea is better, the metrics are shifting. Um, you know, one of them, uh, ease of use, right? Customer experience. And for me, that's when I look at a product, it's, it's so often about why do people want to use this? And you can't tell me about clinical outcomes, et cetera, because I don't know many people that, that pick their particular medical therapy based on the clinical outcome. They pick, pick it based on what's easy, what fits into their life. And to me, that's a metric that we rarely look at, um, but we we ought to focus on it more, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I think as a consumer, ease of use is so important. Like, look at Apple. Um, but I think exactly. also at the same time with the healthcare, I think sometimes can be complicated. The ease of use is for whoever user, but then oftentimes they are not the one who make the decision to make that purchase. Yeah. And how do you you know, convince somebody who don't, who write the check, but don't use the product. Right. Well, and in, in diabetes, it's, you're right. It's very unique in that regard in that, you know, we're, the products that we design in diabetes are, are used by, I, I just like the word patients, but I'm making a point, obviously they're used by people, users, not 
doctors, but they're generally, well, in fact, almost exclusively prescribed by doctors. So who's your customer? Is your customer the doctor or the user? Well, the answer is both. And you have to make sure that you have benefits for both of those people. If you have a much better user experience for the patient, but the doctor just hates the thing for whatever reason, whether it be the traditional clinical metrics aren't there or it's more complicated for their practice, they're not going to script the product. If the user doesn't want to use it, the doctor can write it all they want. And the doctor, excuse me, the user is like, nah, not for me. I mean, in fact, in our particular case with Companion Medical, we used to talk about what we call the four Ps, the patient, the provider, the payer, and the pharmacist. And those are the four groups of people that could really stop the delivery of our product. And we had to make sure to get the experience and the economics right for each and every one of those groups of people. Um, because, yeah, it's not it's not direct consumer. It's not a you know, direct consumer world in healthcare. Um but there are areas of healthcare that are more like that. You know, I'm thinking, for example, cardiology, where you're selling to the doctor and the patient has absolutely no say in what stent they get or what have you. Um, you have one customer and that is clear. But in the diabetes world, it's, it's just not that way. And we have to acknowledge it and, and not focus on one, but everybody. And so oftentimes we hear stories about idea, you know, it's all about implementation, execution. And oftentimes company got started, they have this idea and as it, it evolved, the idea changed. Did you experience that? Yeah, there's two halves of that, right? I mean, I, I do think that implementation is, you know, like 99% of the work, right? I mean, you know, I can have an idea for a teleporter right now, but I don't have a clue how to build one. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I did, there's a billion good ideas in the world, but, um, you know, what I always say is if, you know, and, and, and inventors who may have had the original idea always think that it's worth a lot of money and, you know, it's like, okay, well then go sell the idea and like, oh, but nobody wants to pay for it. Well, then that's what it's worth. And that really tells us the answer, right? Ideas are a dime a dozen. The implementation to me is just an enormous um, portion of the entire value created in the whole thing. Um, and I'm sorry, Christine, there was a second half of that question that I just missed. <laughs> I was just saying about, you know, the ideas. Like, did you experience with um, your uh, the, 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 the technology that you, you know, become successful? Did oh. it start with the idea? Does the idea stay the same from the beginning or it kind of evolve? It's a good question. Um, you know, when I talk to my friends who have, have sort of walked this road, you know, Almost exclusively, I hear a story, usually a horror story, of some fairly massive pivot that the company had to make. You know, they realized this wasn't going to work and they had to go do that instead. And in our case, it didn't really happen. Yes, there were some technological changes that were made. Yes, there was a change to the path where we, instead of trying, our original idea was to go a little stepwise to our ultimate goal. And we ended up making a larger leap at the beginning and kind of jumping right to much of that goal for regulatory reasons. So, so there was changes, of course, but uh, we never really had that that just change in direction where we, you know, as a company had to go another way, which is nothing other than good luck. I mean, we we had a vision. We followed that vision. We were lucky enough that technologically we were able to make it work. We were lucky enough that, that our vision had been accurate enough that people liked it um, and that people were willing to fund it. Um, but no, we, we didn't have that that massive pivot. Uh, but I guess that's one low point in the company we didn't go through, luckily. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's, that's good. Uh, 
And so the other things that, you know, we've seen some, a lot of the time, you know, company entrepreneurs, they see problem, they look at it like, wow, this is something that we can save patients' life at the same time, save um, providers' time, all this good stuff. But then they're having a hard time getting traction because I think oftentimes in the medical devices space, people don't like to, I mean, we are in the healthcare when, you know, therapeutic seems everybody wants to cure something, but when it's to prevent, it's always harder to sell. And then as a result of that, as a patient, we lose out. And what, what do you think that needs need to encourage more innovation or more investment that can help more technology in the area that prevent us from? Yeah, um, it's a really hard question. I mean, I think what we definitely see is what you're describing we see a momentum, you know, um, in in the healthcare provider space. It's just they they know what they do. They know how to manage the diseases that they manage, and they're being largely successful at it. And they're overworked, right? And in my particular case, in my particular space, the the diabetes space endocrinologists, um, you know, we have a massive shortfall in the number of endocrinologists we have in this country today. And which means that the ones that we have are completely overworked. They have huge patient waiting lists and, you know, they're, they're not necessarily incentivized to, you know, hear about a new technology that may be good, but most of them are not right. I and mean, there's a lot of new products that are not helpful um, and pick out that one and then try it and see how it works. It's, you know, they want to, they need to get back into the clinic and, and help people the way they know how to today. Um, and I don't have a silver, silver bullet for that one. Um, I think that, you know, that this is one reason why, you know, engineers, of course, think build it and they will come, but that's just not the case. Um, I think, and if there's any advice I could give to an engineer like myself who ends up finding themselves somehow in an executive level position, um, respect your other, your other disciplines, you know, sales and marketing, right? Um, these people have real jobs for exactly <laughs> the point, reason you're bringing up, right? This stuff doesn't sell itself. I really don't care how good it is. And, um, and it is difficult to get their time, to get their attention, and to communicate to them clearly and concisely what it is that you do, why it's better, and why they should try it, and why it benefits them and their patients. It's a hard thing. Um, but, you know, it can be done. Yeah. And so I know before I ask you about your current exciting adventure. Um, one of the things that, you know, I always think uh, oftentimes when I meet with a lot of entrepreneurs with training from STEM and engineering, and one of the things they realize that the importance of storytelling that oftentimes did not get that training when they're in school. What is there? Do you have any advice or how how do people get to be better in communicating even though they are studying the heart science one word empathy um and i think empathy commonly speaks to sort of a negative like maybe a healthcare provider i don't mean that it's like think about things from other people's perspective why are they listening to you why do they want to listen to you if you are trying to tell somebody a story from your own perspective and you're telling what's important to you, you're likely going to miss what's important to them, which of course is what makes the story interesting. Um, 
and I, I was as bad as absolutely everybody else on that point. Um, and, and frankly, it, since it ties into the story, when I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes myself, um, I, I can't necessarily say why, but it just started to cause me to look at, you know, here was this area I'd been working in for almost a decade in the diabetes space. I get the disease myself and I start to realize what it's really like for people who have it because now I, I in fact do. And the really are odd part to me is that that started to flow into other areas of my life, right? Um, rather than think about what my experience of something would have been or is or what have you, I ask, yeah, yeah, who cares? What's their experience of that? And it doesn't have to be, you know, an illness. It can be anything. And um, I think it, uh, for me at least, mm-hmm. it, it made me better at that. I would remind people to, remember to tell people what they need to hear, not what you want them to hear or what you think is interesting. That's all. Cool. So let's talk about your your current adventures. Tell us more about that. It's really cool. <laughs> I like the name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, um, so Beta Bionics. Beta Bionics is uh, the developer of the first bionic pancreas. And I'll tell you more about that in a second. I will say I didn't name it. I didn't start it. I was founded by a gentleman named Ed Damiano and others um, back in 2015. But oddly, I worked with Ed before he founded the company back in 2011 when he had this great idea and he was moving it along from you know, a laptop-based system to an ambulatory system. And he and I worked together at that stage. And then when I started Companion Medical, we not parted ways exactly, but I wasn't working with him. And um, you know, him and the team at Beta Bionics went out and really created a phenomenal product. And then for me to now come back, you know, like a decade later and get the opportunity to run it is just amazing full circle for me to come to a, a product that I know, a technology that I know, with people that I know. Um, you know, it was just I had to do it. So um and and really beta bionics is one hundred percent fits into sort of my ethos of, of what we talked about earlier, user experience, right? And again, healthcare provider and patient. So what the product is is an automated insulin delivery system that you know, automatically controls your blood glucose, which is, yes, analogous to some of the traditional automated insulin delivery systems. But this is definitely a next generation system. And the reasons for that are that we've done away with the old concepts of setting up the system, um, the, the difficult sort of um, diabetes-based variables that have to be entered into a traditional system. Ours starts up based on weight. This makes the uh, job of the healthcare provider significantly easier. And then for the user itself, traditionally, these systems require the skill of carbohydrate counting. So you look at your meal and you say, okay, that's, you know, bread has 15 grams of carbs and a potato has whatever it is and add it up and enter that into your, your, um, your pump. And then it theoretically does the right thing. In our case, we just have a simple meal announcement, right? Yep, I'm eating a normal dinner for me. And so those are two examples and there are others of ways we've attempted to make the product easier interface with for, again, the patient and the provider. Uh, recently done a pretty big clinical trial before I started, uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine that I think I think shows exactly that. It shows that the product has very good outcomes with those um, interactions. So yeah, we're really very excited about it. We hope to bring it to market in the not too distant future. And yeah, that's great. It's interesting that you've been for the last you know few years, you've been focusing in this particular space. And do you foresee, well, this is talking about future, I <laughs> deviate from the diabetes space. <laughs> I don't know that. Um, 
you know, I, uh, when I was diagnosed myself uh, with type one, I sort of said that I, I had stopped being a medical device engineer and started becoming a, a diabetes engineer. And so far that's proved to be true. Um, with that being said, I've now, you know, spent five years developing, you know, the Dexcom product, which is sort of maybe the number one CGM out there right now. And, mm-hmm. you know, five years of tandem and, and eight years of companion medical. So I've done pumps. I've done in that fact now two pump companies, um, uh, smart pens and CGM kind of hit every aspect of diabetes. So I don't know if there's anything else. <laughs> so I don't know. We'll see what the future brings. I just can't say, Yeah. but I do love the space and I love the people. And obviously I'm dedicated to the clinical condition, mm-hmm. obviously. So I know before, uh, we, uh, we're running out of time. Um, can you, uh, give us, uh, your top three lesson learned for the past, you know, five years or so in terms of like, you know, running the company, leading a team, bringing product to market and getting a company to uh, acquire your company. Yeah. um, So off the top of my head, um, I guess I've quickly thought of three. Um, The first is a phrase that I I certainly didn't um, initiate it. I heard somewhere, I never stopped talking. And what that one to me means is, you know, I, I will take any meeting with anybody. I will quote pitch somebody on an elevator and escalator. You know, I don't care. Um, you don't want to be cooped up with Sean because he'll start talking about whatever he's currently working on. Um, and what's interesting about the, you know, people always ask me why, like, what's the goal of this particular conversation? The answer is I have absolutely no idea, but I also can't, I can't really explain how many times I did that. And something happened out of it, right? Um, you know, I got, I've gotten investments that way. I've gotten introductions and networks and technical solutions by never stop talking. Um, you know, you're, you're never going to have those lightning strike, that lightning strike if you're just keeping it to yourself. Um, the second one, I guess I would say, is this, there's always a way, right? I mean, we get there are low points and they're technical and they're financial and they're organizational and they're whatever they are, but there is a way and um, it's not always pleasant. It's not always uh, comfortable. And, but I do think it's true. So, you know, I mean, it's maybe there's always a way or maybe never give up, but the third one, and maybe this is the most important. Um, we, we started focusing on a phrase a number of years ago, me and, and some of the members of my team, which is companies are bought, not sold. And for the first several years of, of the companion medical journey, we really managed that company to be acquired. Um, it's what we thought our trajectory was. And, you know, every, every six months it's like, well, we don't have to look beyond six months because we're just going to be bought. And, um, and we did that because of a, um, uh, some sort of self-consciousness, you know, we, we believe that the bigger companies are just far better, uh, equipped than us to commercialize the product. So that's where it needed to be. And that's what we were focusing on. And the problem was that every six months or so, when that didn't happen, um, we had to sort of stop and pivot. We could have moved a lot faster if we'd have managed for standalone success, uh, which is what we ended up doing. Um, and then at some point, you know, somebody came along and in fact bought the company and I think are doing a great job with it commercially. So we, uh, yeah, I would say that that was the biggest thing. Um, always manage a company for standalone success because it's the only thing you control. 
is it more that you have the confidence that this is something that we just going to keep on plugging away and we believe in it and somebody's going to agree with us rather than trying to please somebody else? Well, I think you have to definitely do what you think is right. Um, what I don't think you should do as an entrepreneur is play sort of into the hands of whoever you think your acquirer is because wherever their head is, is probably not where you want it to be. Um, better to do what you think needs to be done, show them that you're right, and then let them come around to your method of thinking. Um, that was probably what happened in our case, you know, and I mean, with the world generally, I'm not talking with our particular acquirer, but you know, we, we launched the product, people used the product, people liked the product, and people said, oh, holy smokes, there's, there's something here. Um, but we were kind of unable to communicate that to people ahead of time. Now, there were, everybody and their brother wanted to give us some advice before we were successful and say, this is really what you ought to be doing. And um, I'm really glad we didn't follow a lot of that um, because I, I frankly don't think it was, it, it was the traditional thinking at that point. And um, we were trying to do something different. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that we did. Had we followed that advice, I don't think we would have built something as with the value that we did. Okay. Of course, you know, who's to say, right? Yeah. <laughs> and like 2020 and all that. So. Last question. Uh, as you lead the uh, company, you know, there's a lot of ups and downs. And I always say that um, it all happens sometimes in one day or sometimes there's more. I, I always say there's a lot more down and there's a lot of ups. And when it's down... What do you tell yourself to keep on going? Because, and I always say that failure is only when you quit. That's a, a really good phrase. I like that. Um, that's a great question. And I, I wish I could sort of look at, you know, my last 10 downs and there's been a lot more than 10 and ask myself what I was thinking at that moment. There, I think people tell you that you should be like unreasonably dedicated to your idea and, I think there's truth to that and not. I mean, you know, like you should never close your ears. You should be listening to what the world is telling you, et cetera. And there's no question about that. I mean, not all ideas are good ideas, but it is also true that if you don't fundamentally believe that you're doing something of, of value, whether it be financial value, value to the patient, whatever, um, you know, you're, you're going to lose faith. If you start to think that maybe this isn't a very good idea, you know, you're never going to get it done. The one thought that never, ever, ever wavered in my mind was that we were doing something important and that people would like if we were able to get it to them. I, there were times when I thought maybe we weren't the team or I wasn't the guy. There was times I thought I wasn't going to be able to get it funded. There was times I thought we couldn't solve that technical problem. But, you know, you just have to just keep at it because the world deserves to have um, this thing we were working on. And, yeah, um, I never, never let myself believe in anything different than that. So maybe that kept me going. I learned something from my son who is 15, who told me that, mom, I learned that you quit on a good day, not quit on a bad day. Interesting. I like that. Yeah. I like that. I thought that was interesting. So, but anyhow. Yeah. And remind me of your phrase because I like it. Quit is only, or failure is only when you quit. Yeah. Well, failure happens when I quit. Because that's okay. when, when it's finite, right? And otherwise things are, you know, and I always say that life is all about solving problems. Mm -hmm. And you basically, uh, you have the time between now until the day you die to solve problems. And yeah. When that's happened, that's when you reach that, I don't know, 
that's what we're here to do. You know, hopefully, you know, help the you know the earth in some way, the people on it, and uh, do what we can. And uh, that's why we're the luckiest people in the world to be able to work in healthcare. Yeah, yeah. So, well, thank you. Thanks for your time, and really, it's been a fun conversation. I learned a lot from this conversation that we have today. Thanks so much, Christine. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.